Saxon fans, I've been expecting you. Oh, last lot of podcasting cat is shredding my chest. That's how you start a new season, isn't it? Hello there, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC with Laszlo the podcasting cat on my shoulder like a parrot trying to escape and this is the first Ask Wrexham of the new season the podcast of course when you can get in touch and ask us whatever questions you want to uh, about Wrexham uh, about general footy the town anything you fancy we're up for it aren't we Laszlo? Yeah, he seems to have decided that hanging on my shoulder with his head down my back is the go-to position for podcasting. Now he hasn't. Oh boy, he's going to jump and it's going to hurt me and him equally. Oh no, he's going around the back. This is brilliant catrobatics to start off the season. If you're listening to this, I think you need to watch the first minute of it. There you go, it's done. He's perforated me all over, but fair enough. Okay, let's get cracking with the first question. Uh, Laszlo, you have to be mentioned in one of the questions, but here's our first one. Well, the dulcet tones, oh, dulcet, of Mark Griffiths and the other Booth superheroes be heard throughout the, throughout the video feed this season. If not, is it possible to sync up both feeds simultaneously because you all bring the boot... Uh, I can't read. Goosebumps every time out. Ah, sorry about that. And there's a lovely Photoshop there of Che, Neil and I in our superhero guys, Captain Whitchurch there, of course. Um, well, we will not be on the video feed, and as I've often said, the reason for that is quite plain. I don't think it's appropriate. So our audio commentary is different from the video commentary. The intentions are different. You know, an audio commentary needs to describe, whereas a video commentary doesn't need to describe at all. Um, and so for that reason, no, no, we're a, very much an audio commentary team. Um, is it possible to sync them? Yes, absolutely. Lots of people did that last season as well. So, yeah, I don't see any issue with that. And yes, we are commentating uh, beginning with the old Milton Keynes game. Don't you worry about that. OK, let's get on to the next one. Jared Phelan asks, what are our realistic targets for this season in all competitions? Well, Jared, good question. Um, the league, promotion, preferably automatically, if not. I think certainly it would be a disappointment if we're not in the playoffs. I mean, we've got to be realistic about this. We are going up a division. Opposition will be more high quality. But having said that, we were far too good for the National League last year, as were Notts County. So you would really expect us to be right up there. So in the league, if we're not seriously in promotion contention, I think that would be considered a bit of a disappointment, in all honesty. As for the Cups, the Cups, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Um, it's nice to be back in the League Cup, and we've immediately got a home game against a higher division side. Now, we've certainly got a chance in that. Um, although after coming back from the States, it may well be at Phil Parks and decides to rotate, like against Sheffield United. If you recall, we're playing a higher division side and he rotated the team. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Parkinson's got a phenomenal record, of course, in cup competitions. So he knows how to get through the rounds. Um, it'd be nice to have a little run in that. Or, of course, the FA Cup. And the lovely thing about the FA Cup is we skip the preliminary round. So we enter the competition a round later. So that's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Wrexham has a marvellous heritage in that, but clubs don't budget for the Cups, but clubs will budget to go out in the first round of the Cups so that any extra money brought in by the Cups is, uh, you know, 
a bonus. And that's a good way, in a way, to look at cup competitions. I've seen very good Wrexham sides who have totally failed in the Cups and been successful in a league. I've seen very poor Wrexham sides who have managed to squeak their way through a few rounds of a cup competition. So... The Cups are a bit of a lottery. Now, the Papa John's competition is a competition only for League One and League Two teams. So if our supposition that Wrexham are a side going for promotion is correct, we ought to be, well, OK, if you look at it, league status, sort of halfway up the best teams in that competition. In reality, of course, teams at the bottom end of League One will not be as good as the teams at the top end of League Two. That's just the way it works. So I would have thought, if we take it seriously, that would be an interesting one to look at. The under-21 teams that we are put into this from the big clubs, we've got Newcastle, of course, don't really tend to do that well in it. Uh, the group system will probably help us, I think, especially having two home games out of the three. But on the other hand, there's no doubt, I think, that in that competition we will field our squad members. So we've certainly got an opportunity to do so. The you, the famous LDV Vans victory in 2005 with Ben Foster in goal, Wrexham's first trophy outside of the jurisdiction of the League of Wales. That is the same competition, just with a different sponsor's name. So we do have previous in it, in fact, yeah. <laughs> Pretty tasty previous, eh? But... Uh, who knows? I think how the season pans out will determine that as well. I think sometimes priorities are clearer once you can see exactly how well we're doing in different competitions. Now then, Chris Johnson, after the new stand is built, how much more capacity could we realistically increase the race course to by developing, if possible, the other three stands? And if we do make it to the Premier League, would we have a ground fit for purpose or would it be another Luton? Right, now, I'm no architect, um, but, I mean, if you look around the ground, there's not really much scope to develop, is there? Certainly not on the sides of the pitch. I mean, the student flats, something we talked about at the end of last season, rather limit our chances of developing the Wrexham Lager stand backwards, don't they? If they weren't there, maybe things would be a bit different. Laszlo, don't stand on the keyboard. Um, the other side, likewise, the Mold Road stand, I mean, it goes straight onto the road. You know, both those stands, okay, we could knock down and start again. That'd be a very expensive way to address that issue. And I'm not sure you would be able to get many more real spaces there. You do now. Maybe you could, I suppose, you know, get a double decker stand in, but I don't think that would make a huge difference. Behind the other goal, the tech end, hmm, I wonder. There's certainly space behind it with that car park. Obviously, we don't own that car park, so we'd have to negotiate, wouldn't we, um, with Glendour? And, you know, money talks. If we offer enough, we'll get that. Uh, but they probably won't go easy on us with that either, because they'll know we're desperate for it. So you could make a bigger stand, couldn't you? You could make a, a sort of cop, the new cop style stand at the other end as well. But I don't think there's a huge amount of wriggle room, really. Um, having said that, the idea of us being another Luton, if we went up high enough, and I don't want to talk about that just yet, but let's just hypothetically talk about this. Oh, well, you know, we've got a bigger capacity with the new stand in than Bournemouth has, and it's all seated. So I don't think there'd be too many issues from that perspective. And um, think the issues would be more about, I don't know. I, I, 
No, I was going to say infrastructure, but the new stand, I'm assuming, will have the modern infrastructure that the current ground lacks. And we ha it has been upgraded quite a bit. So I don't see it being a big problem, but obviously if you can fit more people on the ground, that'd be better. And that's an issue. I don't really see that much scope for expanding the ground. Gareth Collins has a lovely Photoshop of me and Laszlo's now cleared off. He says, what does the Henry Blofeld, Henry Blofeld, my dear old chap, think of football, think of was last season's goal of the season? Um, well, I, I think due to the combination of the symbolism of it, the importance of it and the quality of it, Mullins first against Bournemouth, I think, when he cuts inside, makes the goal for himself. There are other goals that I really love. In fact, there were a ludicrous amount of good goals last season. I really liked, there was a James Jones goal, which was a move, and it ended, but I think it was Luke Young playing a first-time layoff to him, or, Sam, or was it Sam Dolby? Um, and it was a lovely, fluent move, across and then forwards. And I loved that goal. But yeah, I think I'd go Mullin, to be honest. South Wales Reds has Mullins' injury scuppered his chances of a Wales cap against Gibraltar. Well, it means that, depend, frankly, how bad is his injury? We don't know for sure. Sounds like, logically, it was going to be six to eight weeks. If we take that eight-week uh, theory, then that means him coming back about around the time that squad's named, which definitely, I think, would scupper it, wouldn't it? You'd want to see him get a few games under his belt beforehand. So I don't know if he's in Rob Page's plans or not. I don't think international football managers are inclined to give out charity caps. And although I personally think Mullen looks good enough to be given a go at international level, at least will see what he can do in a game like that, um, I think that possibly Page sees it a little differently. So I don't know. So if he, the earlier he comes back, the better, I guess, for him in that case. But, uh, well... I, I'm not sure myself whether Paige will be looking to select him anyway, really. Right, and Luke Perry asks, in Australian sports like rugby league, the coaches are mostly often up in the box to see the whole field. Do any football coaches coach from the box rather than the touchline? Oh, Luke, you have touched upon a beauty here, my friend. Right, let's get ready for that irrational thing that grips us. In Britain... We have a genuine, I don't know why, but we've always had a sort of genuine suspicion of managers who aren't on the sounds of the pitch screaming. I think it's because in Britain a lot of people see football as screaming up blokes and somehow that makes them better at football. Um, but I'll give you a national example, on a national level, and then I'll give you Wrexham's very own example. The national level was Sven Juran Eriksson, the Swedish manager, who was manager of England. And he was an undemonstrative bloke. Now, okay, there are some people who are just going to say, he's not English, he should not be managing our team. All right, fine. Well, <laughs> maybe they jumped on the bandwagon a bit and looking for things to pick on him for. But the fact he wasn't demonstrative on the size of the pitch, and there was one game in a World Cup match, I think it was, where I think it was when they lost to Brazil in the quarterfinals in 2002, and he stayed on the bench pretty much throughout, and there was real furore, England lost, and was like, why wasn't he there urging his players on, and I remember thinking, it's not really, what's the point in that, you know, I mean, it, it, different managers have different styles, if you've prepared the team, and you feel that they're executing your plans, that, you know, that's one style of 
coaching. You don't have to be up and screaming at them, do you? Now, that's that's a minority view, frankly, in Britain. I think most people like to see the coaches shouting and screaming as if somehow that makes a difference. However, Wrexham, our own example, and okay, Erickson was generally on the bench, but Wrexham, Brian Flynn, who was manager for Wrexham much longer than anybody else has ever been, from the late 80s through to the early 2000s. Now, the picture I'm showing in the video feed illustrates this nicely. Flynn liked to sit in the director's box. He used to sit the row in front of me, but further along to the right. I always found it a bit weird. I think I was just out over here shot, so I was able to say what I wanted to say. But the thing is that Flynn... What was it? That was a very unpopular thing he did amongst Wrexham fans. I never understood it. I mean, let me talk you through the logic of this. Flynn was manager... He had an assistant manager, Kevin Reeves, who was like Flynn, an experienced international footballer, played most of his career at the top level in the, what was then Division One, um, And he was on the bench. So Flynn trusted Reeves. There were times when there was communication as well. And Flynn felt that he could see the game better from up there, which I totally agree with. And could spot things that people down on the pitch side couldn't spot and then he could come in and use that information at half time and at full time and he would get messages down to the bench if he felt they were necessary now i can see no problem in that as far as i can see that's good isn't it but oh like i said british football fans want to get their money's worth out the managers they want to see him standing on the side of the pitch waving their arms and shouting and it was very unpopular really unpopular with Wrexham fans now i'd say it's a bit more common to do that and well last season some games we had dave jones up with us in the commentary box when there was enough space so that he could watch the game from higher up so he could feed back at half time so you know i mean I, I i think it's a logical thing to do but well poor old brian he got it in the neck for sitting up there now next question from dale webb of the new shirts which is your favorite well, we answered this on Dragonheart, so have a look at yesterday's Dragonheart, and uh, you'll see Neil, Bill, and I discuss it in a bit more detail. But basically, Neil plumped for the red shirt, I think, because I think he just generally likes the red shirt that represents Wrexham. Uh, Bill went for the black shirt. He likes the look of it, and also the idea of the coal mining heritage with the purple flashes on it, which make it sort of look like a coal called glinting in the sun um, and I actually and it wasn't planned beforehand but I made a case for the second shirt the white one I I've heard most people feeling a bit negative about that can't think why ah, it's a really nice clean looking shirt I like it so uh, we were pretty split now we were intending initially to have Che who is of course the fashion expert of the team to be doing a review of the shirts so hopefully in the MK Dons match, we'll be able to get him to cast the, the final vote and say which shirt actually is the best one. Eric Dracon says, So to all my friends across the pod in Wales, after all the friendlies here and water breaks during games, and coming to Florida, where it's hot nine months out of 12, how hot does it get in Wales temperature-wise and humidity-wise? Right, now then. Generally, this is not an issue in Britain. Uh, in the summer, we'll get heat waves and the whole country will go nuts and get overexcited about it and overreact to it. And, well, you know, 
for reasons that I think go beyond this podcast. Those seem to be getting more prevalent as time's going on. Uh, so there usually be a, a point in the summer or two where you might get up to, gosh, around 30 degrees, something like that. What's that, what's that in other currency? 90s, is it? You occasionally get it going up to 100. That's unusual, though. So water breaks in Britain are pretty rare, in all honesty. Um, they're happening a little more regularly, but you usually get one heat wave in the summer. That's about it. Um, humidity. I would say humidity, once it's sunny in Britain, I would say humidity is not that much of an issue, usually. It tends to be a sort of dry sun if you want. It's warm for a bit and then it all gets back to being wet again and then it goes dull. So I'd say humidity is not as much of an issue at all. I just remember my first time flying to Asia, um, stepping off the steps of the plane and thinking, ooh, you know, coming out in front of the engine which is still running and, you know, that it, it makes it feel so warm. And then realise when I go to the bottom of the steps, oh, no, it's not the engines, it's the humidity. Um, we don't get that in Britain, not that sort of level of really sort of sapping humidity, I would say. So you might get water breaks. So I've seen games played in terrific heat. I remember the game very clearly. Gosh, what would that be? Twenty? I want to say 2014, where I could be wrong, could be 13. In my Wobby 13, start of the season, we went to Ebbsfleet and oh, it was horrible because Mark Crichton, who was a superb centre-back for us, got a freak injury, which essentially finished his career. Uh, you've seen him, I'm sure, if you're not aware of Mark Crichton from the uh, punditry that he does. He's done commentaries on some of the matches on Wrexham streaming and he does some media. He's good, uh, good bloke. But, uh, yeah, he just landed on uh, awkwardly. His knee ligaments went and he was never able to recover. It was horrible. But that day was swelteringly hot. Unbelievably hot. Really was. And that, that was as bad as I've seen in Britain. I always remember we interviewed Morel. Morel was the manager then. I think he's playing as well. But anyway, regardless, he did the post-match press conference topless. It's the only time I've seen that ever, because it was so hot. He was just sweating. And all the players were coming out at the back of the stand topless because it was just so hot. And that was a freak, real freak one, that. Um, last season's pre-season, we played Nantwich in a pre-season match, which I mentioned recently because Jason Jones was non-stop in that game, even though it was swelteringly hot. Not as hot as Everseed, though. I think that's the hottest game I've seen Wrexham certainly involved in. And it was, oh, it was a real warm one. But that sort of thing's rare. You don't see it very often. I maybe would argue that last season we dropped two points at Yeovil because we played in very hot conditions. That was very, very warm and seemed a sluggish game. And it sort of pulled our pace down to theirs, perhaps. Adam, Dave Chilcott asks... Not doubting the finishing ability of numbers 16, 18 or 27, that's Dolby, Palmer and Waters, but can't see them replacing Mullins' ability to disrupt defences. Actually, it's not his big start 27, isn't it? Sorry. With him being out maybe as long as a quarter of the season, how much does that impact the team? And is that enough to force Parkey to a deal? Well, I think Parkson's been pretty open in saying that it is enough to force him into a deal, and he has been looking around to look for players. But And I, I do like this about Parkinson. He's not been able to make a deal because he's looking for high-quality players, and those deals take time. 
and he's not willing to just jump in and bring a player in who isn't what he requires. He wants to bring in quality. I like that. And as well, I'm quite happy with the squad he's built. So on that basis, personally, I feel we're in a good position to, to ride out Mullins' injury. Of course, we don't really know how bad it is, how long he'll be out. Hopefully it won't be a quarter of the season. If it was eight weeks... He'd be back around the time of the Stockport match, but we just have to wait and see, don't we, really? We, we also, crucially, don't want to put him in any danger. We don't want him to be playing when he's not quite right and have him hurt and even further. I personally think that in Dolby, Palmer, Waters and Bickerstaff, we've got four decent strikers. Now, it may well be the plan was to loan Bickerstaff out. Maybe that's not on the agenda now because of Mullins' injury, unless they bring somebody in. But he's improved massively. He's still only 21. He's got, you know, in the trophy last season, he looked very, very good. I I wouldn't be worried about him being in the first team squad, personally. Waters looked sharp in the US, I thought. He works very hard. You know, you're not going to get the goals from him that Bullen brings in. But he's a decent goal scorer. And then as for Palmer and Dolby, well... I don't know, a lot of people, I think, are assuming they won't play together. People might well be right. But I, I don't see why not. I know they're both similar in some respects, but you know, Dolby's got enough pace to, to work off Palmer. And I reckon they could work quite well together. I think they'd be a right handful for centre-backs to deal with. Personally, I quite like the look of that combination. A funny feeling that Parkinson may well go Waters and Palmer first game. But we'll see. We'll see about that. The trouble, of course, with replacing Mullen is how the hell do you replace Mullen? He's outstanding. If you're going to replace Mullen, you're going to have to make one of the signings of the season. So, straight replacement's not possible. Likewise, if you're going to bring in a player like that, they're going to be coming in on terms that mean they must be first choice when Mullen's fit again. So it's going to be someone who can play with Mullen. So, yeah, I think a direct replacement is impossible. A drop-off in quality in that regard is inevitable, simply because Mullen is phenomenal. But I think we've got players to to cope with it. And as well, you know, Dolby played second fiddle for a pair part of last season, but did really well. I mean, he's earned his opportunity, and so footballers would approach this, isn't it? You know, if another striker was brought in ahead of him, he'd have every right to say, well, mm, is that fair? Likewise, Waters, you know, was patient, waited his opportunity. Well, you know, maybe he'll see that as well. Now I'm, at the very least, third-choice striker now, and I've got a chance to make an impact at the start of the season. Um, so, yeah, you could create man management issues by bringing in another striker and not handling it right. To be fair, Parkson seems pretty terrific at handling this sort of thing. The number of high-quality, high-profile players he's brought in and kept happy together. Wow, quite something. Now then, Jamie Lightning says, "How did the most who sorry who had the most assists last season? How many were Paul Mullins? How does this impact our goal scoring ability without him? Setting aside the goals he could and would have made, and that is that's a great question. Now, I've got some stats up here. I'm going to refine these and put them out on the final whistle blog because." I've well, basically the figures from last season. The ones I had to hand were basically how many games were we involved in divided by how many assists you had or how many goals you scored. So 
it's a bit of a raw figure, isn't it? I mean, for example, Dolby made 33 substitute appearances, almost all of them after half-time. So, you know, adding that to his 16 starts, I've got him on 49 appearances. But that that's not fair. That does him down, doesn't it? But this is a rough indication. Before I talk about it any more, though, I want to also say that assists in themselves are a little misleading, aren't they? Because you could play the best pass of all time, but if the person on the end of it misses, you don't get the assist. So you're reliant on somebody else to finish off your good work. So they're an interesting stat, but the more interesting stat is chances created. And, well, okay, Wrexham may well have had their own record-keeping and data collection and recorded chances created, but there are no publicly available stats because that just doesn't happen in the National League. And one of the reasons I'm excited about League 2 is we might actually be able to get our hands on some reliable stats on those areas of the game and make some real analysis of how the Wrexham players perform. So I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, let's get back to this and just go through it. So most assists last season, this is in all competitions, is Mullin with 16. So yeah, you're not just losing 47 goals, we're losing 16 assists. Next was Luke Young on 13. Elliot Lee on 12, and Palmer on 10. Behind them, James Jones and Sam Dolby had eight each. McFadgen had six. Anthony Ford, five. Ryan Barnett, five. You've got Mendy, Hayden, Jordan Davis on four. Tozer on three. Tony Cliff on two. And then there was one assist piece by Clueth, O'Connell, O'Connor, Cannon, and McAlinden. Now, I've put assist rates up. Like I said, it's a bit rough. You know, how many games do they go between assists? Surprise, surprise. Mullins, the best. 3.31. So, you know, we are, you know, we are going to miss the guy. Uh, Luke Young, next best, on 3.46. Then it drops down a bit to leave of 4.33. But then when you go all the way down, you realise I've missed out the best one of all. Ryan Barnett got five assists in 12 games. So he actually, I beg your pardon, betters Mullin every 2.4 games. And wow, if he can maintain that next season, <laughs> League Two defences are going to have a major problem. Also, McFadgen's goals, uh, assists per game is actually better than Jones, Dolby and marginally Palmer. But like I said, I think it'll be interesting to see what I can come up with in terms of uh, minutes per assist. And I'll do that later on. Mullin. Combined assist and goal rate, he either scores or sets a goal up every 84 minutes, which is pretty phenomenal. And that's a good indication of what we're losing out, a goal a game. Although, of course, other players can step up and, and tidy her up and replace that, hopefully. Uh, other notable players in terms of assisted goal rates are two others who uh, achieve either a goal and assist less than every two games. Both Lee and Palmer, 1.93 games. But I think Dolby who comes out of 306, might be better when I look at them per minutes. So Mullen's a loss, creatively, absolutely right. Just as much as he's a loss in terms of his his goal scoring. But then he, we know he's a phenomenal player, and I guess we know that. My optimistic take of this is that we've got a lot of goals in this team anyway. Our midfield is scoring goals. And our defenders are dangerous from set pieces. So there's a lot of goals in that side, even without Mullen. Although, obviously... I'm quite keen to see him back. Now then, the next one is going to get an apology. There's two questions coming up that are going to get apologies and promises. Neil asks, who has the Wrexham record for scoring the most own goals? 
I've been looking into this. It'll take me a bit more time. I'm sorry, Neil, but I promise I will get back to you and I will give you the answer to that one. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a few names come into my mind, but we'll wait on. Uh, I will say that we did have the guy who used to have the record for the most own goals scored in the Premier League, which was Frank Sinclair. He and Jamie Carragher sort of dominated that statistic. Um, he played for us at the end of his career under Dean Saunders. I can't remember if he actually scored any for us, though. I can't recall. I can recall a game or two where we scored two own goals in the same game. They were great. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on, although there is a another one like that to come. Um, Jarvis, are we all rib and lung experts now? When do you think we'll see Super Paul Mullen back? Well, people have been saying six to eight weeks, and that hasn't been the club. I think the club's quite sensible in keeping their cards close to their chest because... You know, we don't want to give other teams information really on when he's due to come back. Managers often like to suddenly spring a surprise and select a striker uh, when when the opponents are not expecting it and get caught off guard. So six to eight is what people have generally been saying, but I don't think there's any particular medical backup for that. Uh, that's the best we can give you, in all honesty, I'm afraid. Right, now, Tim... Crows is the cools, sorry, is the other guy who needs an apology. Tim, I'm sorry, but I will answer this fairly soon. Mine has likely been consistent throughout the season, this question. Outside of a few teams that were in the National League when the documentary started, I don't know anything about any of these teams that we are playing. Who are they? And why should we have known what what should we have known about them prior? Okay. I think I I'll save this till next week if it's okay, Tim, because I've been pulling a couple of things together to do this. Might even devote a whole podcast to it. Um but I'll talk about MK Dons and Wigan now, just to get that info out there before those matches. So MK Dons were well, interesting opponents to face up to first time. They are genuinely unpopular across British football and I'm not saying that about the people who are there now but the formation of their club um, is taken as one of the darkest moments of the Football League. Basically Wimbledon, which is in South London, traditionally a non-league team, rose up the divisions remarkably, playing it's got to be said a pretty savage aggressive style of football it wasn't pretty to watch but it was incredibly successful and without the benefits of real big benefactors they moved all the way up from non-league to the top division stayed there for quite a while won the fa cup so that was seen as a real sort of fairy story notwithstanding some of the violence of their play and they were bought up eventually just as they were sort of sliding back down from the top division and the owner decided to move them to Milton Keynes. Now, Milton Keynes is a new town. These are towns that were built around the middle of the 20th century after the war. And it's about, what, 40, 50 miles north of London? So it's a fair journey from Wimbledon. Now, obviously, Wimbledon fans were livid about this, the idea of their club just being picked up and uprooted and put somewhere else, a different part of the country. It's It's not unheard of in British football, but doing that permanently kind of is you know some teams have had to move temporarily Chester had to play for a bit at Macclesfield um, but these are more to do with problems of grounds problems of money Coventry were evicted from their stadium for a long time of course and played in places like Northampton but these weren't 
choices. This was a choice to move Wimbledon up to Middleton Keynes. The name changed to MK Dons because Wimbledon were the Dons and it was an attempt to make there seem to be a connection. But that geographical connection was completely gone. Now, I know that in US sports, this sort of thing happens. You know, Brooklyn Dodgers going to LA, etc. The um, Springfields, whatever they were, the isotopes, the Springfield isotopes going to Albuquerque. And, but but no, it, this doesn't happen in Britain. And this they were labelled franchise FC. A lot of Wimbledon fans, understandably, refused to have any part of it and formed their own Phoenix Club. Phoenix Club being a club that's created from the ashes of a, an original club, which has gone out of business normally in this case because it's just been picked up and put somewhere else. Now I say dark days for the football league. Because everybody, I think, was very, very shocked when the Football League said okay to this and they moved up to Milton Keynes. So Milton Keynes are genuinely, genuinely unpopular. Like I said, I'm not saying that's anything to do with their current setup or people or the owner who moved them is still in place. Um, but they are, yeah, not liked. An example of this, when Saturday comes, is a, an excellent monthly magazine about football in Britain. It came about in the 80s. And it's very much about the fan culture. It comes out of fanzine culture, really. And um, I was reading this morning their season preview. It came through my letterbox. And I was having a look. And I had a look to see what they said about Milton Keynes. Because what they do is they ask a person from each club, you know, a fan or a journalist to talk about it. Andy Gilpin from uh, Fearless and Devotion does it really well for the Wrexham one. I went to Milton Keynes and it's, I remember then. I wasn't going to get any joy out of this because for Milton Keynes it just said we didn't ask them. <laughs> when Saturday comes, refuse to acknowledge them and they don't ask them their opinion for the pre-season preview. Whoa. So that's how strongly people feel about it. It is a fascinatingly weird quirk that our first two league games are Milton Keynes, Dons and Wimbledon. That's really strange. And hmm, they're going to play each other twice this season. That's going to be tasty, to say the least. Uh, yeah. So Milton Keynes not popular. Um, they are down south, obviously, like I said, although not as far south as Wimbledon, then north of London. So between the London and the Midlands, really. Um, the other side we're going to be playing, Wigan Athletic on Tuesday, are an interesting story, similar to the Wimbledon one. Wigan is a you know decent-sized town near Manchester, long industrial heritage. If you, if you want to know about that, read George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. No, don't read that, because that's the other one about him slumming it. Read The Road to Wigan Pier. That's the one about Wigan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it. Where Orwell, like he does in Down and Out in Paris and London, basically lives a working-class life during the Depression in order to see what it is like. And, as always with Orwell, literature fans... Although he is motivated completely by sympathy to the working class, he is at least upper middle class, and he's sort of faintly disgusted by it all. It's a good book. Anyway, although oh, oh, down out in Paris and London, it's a rollicking read. It's great fun, especially the bit in Paris with the anarchist chef who always spits in the rich people's soup before sending her up. Sorry, anyway, different story. Um, but yeah, Wigan, a rugby league town. A rugby league is... Pretty popular in Britain, but only in certain very definite geographic bands. Uh, the North West, 
going across into Yorkshire is the main band of uh, rugby league. And you will find some decent-sized towns in Britain who don't have major football teams and favour the rugby league teams. And Wigan is most definitely one of them. They have two teams in Wigan, unless I've uh, gone out of date. And rugby league is always seen as the big one. Wigan Athletic, traditionally, the football team were a non-league team. And then in the I want to say 80s, they came up into the national into the the football league for quite a while. They were down in the bottom two divisions, just mosing around and not doing that much. But then, uh, and, uh, well, a benefactor came along, a genuine benefactor. Just I'm not one of these dodgy characters who throws money in there once more back. And they rose and rose up the divisions. It was a nice story, and they got into the top division. A nice template for us, perhaps. Uh, they got a new ground out of it. Their old ground, Springfield Park, no Simpsons reference intended, was a bit grim, to be honest with you. I remember commentating there. And the problem with the commentary box, it stretched from halfway across the stand to the very right extreme of the stand. They had a glass window down the side of the stand, which I, I don't think had been cleaned since George Formby was a boy. Wikipedia him. And he... And... As a result, it was quite difficult to see the right side goal mouth if you were on the right side of the brass box. <laughs> I remember lots of people sitting in the aisle who were supposed to be sitting there, but they'd go so they could see the game and then run back to their phones if something happened. And, yeah, it was it was a bit testing there. So their new stadium's nice, you know, Premier League standard. Um, but they've had financial problems lately, so they're just, and they've, they've slipped down a couple of divisions because of that. And they're now trying to gather themselves up again. A friendly club, nice club, but yeah, um, got onto hard times. Traditionally a small club, but they've had that wonderful burst up the division. But oh, they won the FA Cup as well, just like Wimbledon did. And so yeah, hope that's useful. I'll tide you over for the week, Tim, and then I will try to get another pod out quickly next week. Maybe addressing all those teams. Sounds like a plan. Like Paul Bell. Now, Paul, interesting question. Is Ask Wrexham going to be exclusively on Twitter this year? Or are you exploring other mediums as well? Well, um, I am exploring other mediums. and I hope I'll have it set up for the Milton Keynes game. If I'm perfectly honest with you, the problem is the danger of getting overwhelmed by the Ask Wrexham stuff. Um, now, I'm not saying that negatively. I love it. But I've struggled to keep up with the volume of them. And also during a game, uh, if that's what you're referring to, Paul, it's, uh, you know, obviously, you, you know full well, if you listen to the commentary, we often fail to keep up with the answer excellent questions and have to come back to them afterwards. That's why this podcast exists. So I am looking at spreading it around other mediums, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not 100% yet happy with the form of monitoring it that we need to do if you see what i mean but that's certainly something in my mind yes also have there been any improvements to the press box and commentary area in preparation for league two given the importance of plays and building international fans well thank you very much i don't think there has been as far as i'm aware um there will be a slightly different setup for us out of necessity but it's nothing for you to bother about, really, and it's not really a, a material change in how we'd be doing things. So I think the answer is not really. I, I should talk about the whole Wrexham player thing as well, because a lot of people are a bit 
unsure about how to access the commentary. Now, the club, because we're part of Wrexham Player, part, therefore, of the EFL's iFollow platform, I mean, the club will make a lot of money out of that, and it's a no-brainer to be part of it. Um, but we, therefore, have to comply with the packages that the EFL offer. So my understanding is that if you're in Britain, you can buy a one-match audio pass or a season audio pass. But if you are an international fan, you would have to get the match streaming pass in order to listen to the commentary as well. It's all bundled into one, which I guess is because in general clubs don't tend to have a commentary that's sort of leading interest as such. So, like I said, the club sounds pretty tied on that, really. We're in the EFL on their platform. We have to follow their rules. So, yeah, just to, if that clears it up at all, I've got to be honest, I feel bad. I've had an awful lot of tweets asking me. I've not answered to them because I've not been fully sure of everything, but I've asked around a little bit, and that's my understanding of it. Wow. Beer, bear, beer. If only one of the Arsenal Wrexham commentary team had to fill in for an injured Wrexham player, who would it be in, in what position? And Cryptic said, easy, bring Mark Griffiths out of goalkeeping retirement. Hmm. Um, Cryptic, I love you. You're so kind. Those days are gone. I'm morbidly obese. And let's be frank, you know, I'm doing this properly, you know. So <laughs> I'm in no state to come back. To be, I, I, I sort of decided about two years ago to stop because I was still playing in like charity matches in school and things like that. Um, but yeah, I got to the point now where my Achilles tendons are absolutely shredded to pieces. So I probably think that's a no-go. I was fortunate to play at a decent level. Fortunate being the key word. I think I was just uh, in the right place at the right time. I did play Wrexham School Boys, Wales School Boys and Leagues and Liverpool for a little bit. Um yeah, but I think I can still shout like a goalkeeper. I'm good at that. I'm good at bossing people around from the edge of the box. But then when it was like at the ball, yeah, I'm not as much used as I used to be. As for the other three, I've only seen one of them play. And I saw him play on the race course pitch in a staff match. You know, the people who work at the race course. Che, I reckon, is a decent defensive player. So I think he's your man. If we, if we lose... if. Uh, a sort of centre-back or full-back or defensive midfielder, stick Che in there, we'll be laughing. I promise you. And Jason, well, final question, important question, as he says, considering the team's international friendly tours of the US this summer, will we be seeing or hearing some American pie tastings at half for 23-24? An American pie tasting? I hope you're not referring to the film. Eek. JD Lightning follows up. How common are sweet pies like berry, fruit and squash? And do you have a favourite? Okay, let's talk pie, everybody. I think it's important that we do so. Um, well, you see, yes, we went to the States, but no one's brought me a pie back. So I'm afraid our offerings are likely to be similar to what they were before. I better go to the shop tonight in the morning. Buy something pastry covered. So I don't know if that will have an impact. Now then, sweet pies. Sweet pie of mine. Yeah, we have sweet pies, absolutely. But in Britain, I would say that generally when you say pie, you are making people think of a savoury pie, generally. Don't get me wrong, we'd call them a pie or a tart. Um, and yeah, they're popular. Well, certainly berries and fruit pies are. But I wouldn't say squash pies are. Pumpkin pie 
is a fairly alien idea to British people. Not totally, um, but it's not a common thing to find. I like pumpkin pie very much, and it's very nice, but I think most people won't have had it. So maybe that's something, maybe that's what we should campaign for this season. What's the point in starting a cult if you're not able to change the world, or at the very least, damage a lot of people's minds? Let's make pumpkin pies a priority this season. Not least for its alliterative, plosive effects and potential. Right, well, pies and football. We've covered it all. Fantastic. It's lovely chatting to you again, guys. Back next week with another Ars Waxham, in which I'll look at Tim's question in more detail. But uh, until then, muchachos, enjoy the game on Saturday, however you do it. Come on, the Reds. Oh, I'm Mark Rivers from Wrexham AFC. That I fulfilled my contractual obligation to myself to say that at the end, because it feels so good. <laughs>